a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, it's a fine day to be engaging in wrong think. Not just engaging in it. We're going to revel in it. Roll around in it. (laughs) Throw it all over the place. Cover ourselves in wrong think. Okay, it's starting to get a little carried away here, but I'm telling you, this is one of the survival skills that is not only necessary today, but is going to be increasingly important in the days ahead. And I guess we'll start, speaking of wrong think, I don't know if you caught this over the weekend, one of the big uh, intrigues that uh, has occupied a lot of people's attention is that uh, Elon Musk has allowed a restoration of Alex Jones' Twitter account. I know it's called X, but it'll always be Twitter to me, at least at some level. And uh, Alex Jones is back. Now, you remember, following, I believe it was following uh, Sandy Hook, uh, the, or, I'm sorry, the, the trial in which he was found guilty of, of saying things that were um, untrue or things that were defamatory about uh, Sandy Hook. I, you know, honestly, I don't know because I, I have not uh, followed Alex so closely. There are some things that he said, for which, by the way, he has apologized since. And I think he was fined some un, un, uncanny amount of money, like... Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for for wronging the parents and and other families that were victimized at Sandy Hook. But, uh, and and I believe what he did was he called it, uh, he he said that it was was basically a false flag operation. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know. I don't know. There are... There are always questions that come to mind whenever some very high-profile atrocity is milked for the opportunity to further expand government power. I'm sorry, you know, that's just historically, you know, how things go. We have our little Reichstag moments where, you know, suddenly we have to give the government extraordinary power to deal with this. And I'm not saying that Alex Jones was right. I'm just saying that it's a good idea to be skeptical of whatever the official line is. But, oh, the angst, the gnashing of teeth. There are people walking around, I'm sure, today in sackcloth and ashes because uh, Alex Jones has been restored to a, a very prominent social media platform. And it's it's so interesting to see how, how this uh, really kind of flushes out the people who are absolutely terrified of the idea of free speech. So, you know, something to think about, you know, if, if, if it's important to you that you control what other people think, I would encourage you to please stop for just a moment and ask yourself, is this really about, I'm just trying to protect people from dangerous ideas and dangerous words that nobody should ever say? Or is it a matter of, I am not confident that I can articulate my own viewpoint? And so it's, it's best if I advocate for somebody, some third party, to censor ideas that I find uncomfortable, ugly, objectionable. Look, we are all going to encounter offensive or opposing ideas as we go about our lives. And those who are committed to individual freedom, this is a big test of our commitment to that because, well, that urge to, to silence people with whom we disagree, it's very, very strong. And yet, the more a person understands about the principles and the practices of freedom, the more you realize that you cannot 
silence other people if you want to see good and virtuous ideas ultimately prevail. Why? Because in silencing people, or at least admitting that, yes, there's a proper role in taking away people's voices, you're admitting that uh, at some point someone could do the same to you. In other words, the, the best counter to bad ideas is more, not less, free speech. It's funny. I Someone had, had posted, I think it was Brian Allman from Gem State Substack, had posted something on Twitter yesterday about... Uh, about Alex Jones, you know, being, you know, reinstated. And it was so interesting to see immediately one of the things is, oh, yeah, well, what what do you mean? You know, hate speech is fine in your world. You know, it's, it's that it's the British lady who was interviewing Jordan Peterson. So you're saying that I'm a lobster. It's that same mentality. So they'll sit there and accuse you. Well, if you're glad that uh, the free speech is, is being celebrated, you probably support hateful speech. You think that's just fine. And if you say to that person, well, hey, what someone thinks or says, that's their own business. As long as their behavior is peaceful, even if they hold bad or ugly ideas, that's their prerogative. Again, as long as their behavior is peaceful. But the bottom line here is the best ideas only take hold when they can be freely expressed. And that means that you're going to encounter bad ones as well. But you gotta, you've got to trust that the good ideas will come out on top. The cream will rise to the top. In the meantime, you know, let go of that need to control what other people think. It's robbing you of your happiness. And by the way, the response to to that observation was, oh, so you should definitely run around calling people, calling black folks the N-word, huh? Or any other hateful language. You're good with that. Yes, that's exactly what was said. (laughs) I mean, do you tie your own shoes with that kind of mentality? The need to control what other people think. Oh, you know, it's it's such an interesting place where we find ourselves. Where, and I don't know where this comes from other than, in, like I say, an insecurity in their ability to express their own vo- viewpoint. I think that's probably more likely the explanation rather than, oh, they just have a visceral hatred of anything that is good or, or noteworthy or virtuous. Nah, there are probably some individuals out there like that, but I think the average commentator who, who stumps for censorship doesn't understand that, uh, yes, there are some things that, uh, there's some places where censorship is appropriate, okay? But it's at the individual level. I'll give you an example. You're surfing along on the internet and something pops up and it's suggestive, or maybe it's just downright pornographic. That's This is one of my gripes about uh, Twitter slash X, is I've noticed that more and more there there are... I don't know, people trying to promote their OnlyFans accounts or whatever, but every so often you'll see something pop up, you know, just as a response to somebody else's post. And it's it's an invitation, right? Yeah, if you're interested, you could click on it if you want. Or you could say, I prefer not to expose myself to those kinds of ideas or images or thoughts. So you self-censor. I know there's also those who say, well, now you can't know it's bad unless you tried it yourself. But, okay, you can also learn from other people's mistakes, too. So I'm just saying that that's that's a possibility as well. But always, always, we should be on the side of more free speech, even if it's speech that we don't agree with. Again, as long as the actions are peaceful, what's in somebody's mind, and that's really what this comes down to, is what what is that person thinking? Are they thinking unapproved thoughts? So what? If you have better ideas, if you have more sound principles, 
then become educated. Learn how to articulate. Know the information well enough that you can tell it in a persuasive way and people could see it and make sense. In other words, it's not about, well, I've got to bend everybody to this point of view because this is the only right point of view. And you'll notice the people who get the angriest about dissenting points of views, dissenting points of view, rather, are those who really aren't that confident in what they think. Or at least who haven't paid the price, and so they're unsure, and that's why it's very threatening to them. By the way, uh, uh, just kind of a a side note for this, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but uh, former Vice President Al Gore was on a TV show warning that access to non-mainstream information threatens democracy. That's his words, threatens democracy. He says, people having access to information outside of mainstream media sources is a threat to democracy and... He says social media algorithms ought to be banned. Now, I'm including an article here from, uh, this is from ZeroHedge.com. You can actually check out the video clip yourself. I'm not going to play it here because, well, I have other things that I want to talk about. But social media has disrupted the balances that used to exist that made representative democracy work much better. This is Gore whining on this, this TV show. The former vice president said that functioning democracy relied on a shared base of knowledge that serves as a basis for reasoning together collectively. Notice he uses that word. But social media is dominated by algorithms that upset this balance. And then he really makes a stretch. According to Gore, people are being pulled down rabbit holes by algorithms that are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. Holy smokes. (laughs) I mean... Believe people when they tell you who they are, and uh, he's pretty representative of the ruling class. But they really want to ban dissent. They must control all of those non-mainstream narratives. Why would that be? See, the the obvious answer to me is because the mainstream sources, the so-called you know corporate media, it's fully co-opted. It's not a it's not a a, a watchdog you know to prevent against government misdeeds and abuse of power. No, it's a lapdog. And right now, its job is to make sure that uh, dissenting voices, like mine, don't get to, to see the light of day. Now, I've had it easy. I've never been important enough to have been banned. Oh, sure, I get a few notices every now and then from Facebook or YouTube. We've removed your content. Usually, it's for something I said two or three years ago. I think, man, you guys have a lot of work ahead of you. <laughs> Pay attention. But the bottom line, more free speech is your friend. Learning how to discern truth from error, becoming more educated, that's also your friend. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, ironsightbrewingcompany.com, and also quiltandso.com. By the way, you'll notice if you go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, uh, my friend Kendall Whiting has done some marvelous work. He is my webmaster, and uh, he has really, he's punched up the website quite a bit. I hope you'll go check it out. Subscribe to my daily show notes if you want to be, you know, well-informed, and I'll send them to your email each day that I do the show. So with that in mind, let's jump into another topic here. Um, If you were to come up with a name for the current decade, I understand it's only three years old, right? What would you call the decade that we are currently in? 
Now, come on, you think about, you know, the, the uh, you know, fabulous 50s, the, the roaring 20s, you know, the, the desperate 30s. I don't know. There are a lot of different names, but Jeffrey Tucker says, hey, it's not too early for us to go ahead and embrace a name for this decade. And writing for the Brownstone Institute, he says, you know, the New York Times is actually running a contest asking people, what should we call this era? Some of the possible candidates include the terrible 20s, the age of emergency, Cold War II, the Omnishambles, <laughs> the Great Burning, and the, uh, well, I really can't say that one, the A-Holocene era. Anyway, he says, try as I might, I cannot understand these, these different, uh, you know, names that they're throwing out there. Regardless, he says, it's absolutely the case there's been a dramatic turning of events and our lives, and it's not just national, it's global, it's devastating. He says, I would probably go with the terrible 20s. Everybody seems to agree this moniker applies, regardless of class or political leanings. You can take your pick of the symptoms, ill health, inflation, political division, censorship, overweening state power, shabby pol- political candidates, war, crime, homelessness, financial strain, dependency, learning loss, suicides, excess deaths, shortened lifespans, lack of trust, demographic upheaval, the purge of dissent, the threat of authoritarianism, mass incompetence, spread of crazy ideologies, lack of civility, fake science, corruption at all levels, the disappearance of the middle class, and on and on ad infinitum. So put it all together. Yeah, he says you have terrible times. Now, he says, we seek out diversions. We find them in trips, movies, art, liquor, substances, uh, religion, meditation. But no matter what we do, once we come back from the temporary respite, there is no denying the awful reality all around us. And the more terrible, the more the terrible multiplies, cascades, and entrenches itself, the less obvious are the solutions. Jeffrey Tucker says the center stopped holding a few years ago and it's ever less in view. We have to struggle to remember the good old days of 2019. They seem like a dim memory. Memory and nostalgia seems to be all we have anymore. We watch the Gilded Age and Downton Abbey with winsome reflection. Oppenheimer, Barbie, Napoleon, anything historical will do. We just smile to know that Dolly Parton and Cher are still performing because it gives us comfort. And there's always reruns of Seinfeld to bring us delight. Our streaming music services can bring back the golden age of rock or country or classical with the push of a button. We can examine old family photos and marvel at the smiles and the source. We can reflect on the good lives of our parents and grandparents. But he says, regardless, it all seems to be in the past, which always seems to compare favorably with the present. More profoundly, the past compares favorably to any imagined future we can conjure up. For instance, he says the carousel of progress at Disney World is like a macabre joke now. Indeed, the profits of our future seem only to come up with dystopias, owning nothing, eating bugs, doing without, bikes over gas-powered cars, surveillance, cancellation, 15-minute cities, shot after shot for weird infections, Zoom-based communications, and the absence of elegance in dress, food, and travel, except, of course, for the elites who live like District 1 in the Hunger Games. That's because this hell has been visited, that has been visited upon us is far worse than anything even the pessimists predicted in March of 2020. He says, we looked at the extreme policies of the time and forecasted unemployment, growing population despair, loss of confidence in health, public health and experts, as well as a long period of economic disruption. But we could not have known then that the two weeks would turn to two months and then to two years and longer. 
It was like society-wide torture under the thumb of autocratic bureaucracies who were merely making things up as they went along and justifying it all with duplicitous science and smiles made for social media. I like this next line, too. The fakeness of everything was suddenly revealed to us, and everything we once trusted suddenly seemed to be part of the system. Where were the mayors and judges? Well, they were scared. Where were the pastors, priests, and the rabbis? They said the same things as the TV anchors and NPR. Where were the academics? They were too worried about promotion, tenure, and grant money to speak out. Where were the civil libertarians? They vanished. Fearing departing too far from the mainstream consensus, however manufactured. Everywhere we go and anything we do now involves something digital, and mostly it's about verifying who we are. We're scanned, QR'd, tracked, traced, facially and retinally recognized, monitored, and uploaded to some great database somewhere, which is then deployed for purposes of which we don't approve. We can't even go anywhere without our monitoring devices once called phones. We cannot travel or even mail packages without a real ID. Every once in a while, the government sends a loud squawk to our pockets so that we remember who is in charge. The demarcation between public and private is gone. And that applies to sectors, too. We no longer know what's commerce and what's government. But he says the strangest feature of it all is the lack of honesty about it. Yes, the terrible truth about our times is now widely admitted, but the source of all the problems? Who did this to us and why? That's all still taboo. There's been no open discussion about the lockdowns, the masking hoax, the failed shots, the surveillance. Still less, there's been open talk, uh, has, has been open talk about the people and the powers behind the entire fiasco that shattered everything we once took for granted about our rights and freedoms. Is it any wonder, really, that civil strife and even war are the result? Jeffrey Tucker says we want to know who or what broke the system. But for answers, we have to depend on those least likely to provide them. This is because the people who might otherwise tell the truth all went along with the lies. We can think of no other solution than to keep telling them and Till they can think of no other solution than to keep telling them till we forget that we're entitled to the truth. And by the way, he says that seems to apply to the whole of mainstream media, government, and tech. The experts who are in on it are hardly the ones to get us out of it. So we try to find the best workaround we can. For a while, the boycotts against bad guys worked until there became too many to remember. Pfizer and Bud Light, sure, plus Target, but now it's Walmart, Amazon, Facebook, Google, CVS, Eventbrite, CNN, and who knows who else. Are we supposed to be against Home Depot and Kroger, too? It's hard to remember. We can't boycott everyone. Are victories over this brand or that or this policy or that, a good court decision that loses on appeal, are regarded by the plotters as nothing but temporary setbacks. The terrible is like a great ooze that keeps flowing and filling up the world no matter how much we scrub, clean, and bail. We want to support local restaurants. They were so victimized throughout, but it's too expensive. Plus, we've rediscovered home cooking, but even that gives us sticker shock at the grocery store. Plus, during good times, everyone developed some kind of eating eccentricity. No meat, no carbs, no gluten, no fish, no seed oils, no corn syrup, nothing inorganic, plus every manage of religious restriction. But that doesn't leave much to eat at all. We would hold a dinner party, but there's no way to get a consensus, and our cooking skills have atrophied in any case. Becoming a home-based short-order chef is out of the question. He talks about the things that have happened to our kids. People under 18 have been socialized to believe that the nutty world in which we live, masking up, closed schools, 
Zoom class, social media addiction, anger all around. That's just the way the world is. We struggle to explain otherwise, but we cannot do so with confidence because after all, maybe this is indeed how the world is. And yet we cannot shake the reality that they know next to nothing about anything. History, civics, literature, much less anything truly technical. They never read books. None of their peers care either. Their career aspirations are to become an influencer, right? Leaves their parents in the awkward position of recommending otherwise in times that seem to have changed us so dramatically from when we went up. From when we grew up, rather. I'd say he's knocking this one right out of the park. Again, this is Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute on the terrible 20s. It's not too early to name the decade. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to return briefly to Jeffrey Tucker's commentary. He does a very good job of outlining the challenge in front of us, which you probably have noticed, right? (laughs) Your eyes are open. You're not trying to stay away from it. So what is the solution? Where's the hope? What's the way out of this mess? Well, first of all, he reminds us, you know, that the Victorian era liberals, right? They warned us that civilization, there's that word, is more fragile than we know. In other words, we have to believe in it. We have to fight for it. Otherwise, it can be taken away in an instant. And once it's gone, it's not easily restored. And that's something that we're discovering for ourselves today at some cost. We cry from the depths, but the hole only gets deeper and the orderly lives we took for granted become more and more defined by, you know, anami and the frightening surprise of the unthinkable. Well, he says the traditional answer to our, the way out of this mess and these questions that we're asking about how do we, how do we find hope again They all revolve around seeking and telling the truth. Now, that's surely not asking too much. Yet he says it's the last thing that we're getting today. What prevents us from hearing it? Well, the problem is too many people are invested in the lie to allow it to get a fair hearing. So, the times are terrible, not because of some impersonal forces of history, as Hegel would would tell it, but because a small minority decided to play dangerous games with fundamental rights, laws, and liberty. They broke the world, now they're pillaging what's left. It promises to stay broken and looted so long as the same people who either gain the courage, either will gain the courage to admit to wrongdoing, or, like the decrepit old men who ruled the Soviet Empire in its last days, they finally perish from the earth. Very interesting thought. Now, I want you to feel more hopeful than you probably feel as you look at the daily news, and again, you see the challenge ahead of us. It's real. Times are tough. Economically, there is upheaval. Uh, Geopolitically, I'm still, I'm not ungrateful that we're not in the middle of World War III, but I still can't shake the feeling that we seem to be on a collision course that's going to result in it. And it's deliberate. That's, to me, the worst part of it. But I want to give you some hope from J.B. Shirk, writing in AmericanThinker.com, about the future's zero-sum game. Now, J.B. Shirk starts right out of the bat saying, let's imagine that a complete societal collapse occurs in the near future. Unthinkable? Well, with New York high school students hunting down their teachers for supporting Israel or the FBI continuing its own hunt of J6 political protesters and rising violent crime throughout the United States, that scenario doesn't really seem that remote. 
unfettered illegal immigration with the replacement of Western civilization with a suicidal devotion to some amorphous multicultural pustule have shattered the unifying bonds of a shared culture. Then you have institutionalized racism in the form of government and academic and corporate DEI initiatives replacing merit with skin color and oppression index scores has divided the population even further. The demonization of mainstream political opinion as extremist, far-right, or even as prima, prima facie evidence for domestic terrorism has ensured that roughly one half of the body politic can no longer express its views without threats of criminal sanction and career retaliation. He's not wrong, by the way. Any American who opposes Marxist globalism, deep state imperialism, bureaucratic tyranny, or central bank money manipulation is labeled a threat. Any American who strenuously defends free speech, religious liberty, private property, the right to self-defense, and any other freedom that guards the individual against intrusions from the state is labeled a threat. Any American who objects to the government's elite's obsession with global warming or who believes real science is never capable of reaching a dogmatic consensus is labeled a threat. In other words, the U.S. government and its globalist allies view at least a couple hundred million Americans as enemies of the state. Now, in functioning democratic republics, vicious ideological disagreement does not normally set a nation on fire. Political factions with great hostilities toward each other can coexist when political outcomes are determined by a set of agreed-upon rules. Democratic elections, Republican virtues, such as civil respect for political minorities, and constitutional safeguards that ensure the preservation of individual rights all foster a kind of governmental fairness that allows even polarized societies to flourish. However, when certain speech is censored as hateful or misinformation, when the criminal justice system selectively prosecutes individuals based on their, indiv their political affiliations, when nobody has any faith in the legitimacy of an election's outcome, and when constitutional rights are, quickly, are regularly disregarded or overridden by the state, well, peace tends to break down rather quickly. Now, J.B. Shirk says, when the normal release valves for civil disagreement disappear, and the state chooses to perpetually torment certain citizens for their beliefs. Those victims of government authoritarianism are left in a social wilderness. The deprivation of their civil rights within the governing system leaves them with a choice to either abandon their principles and avoid persecution or to operate beyond the constraints of the system. Whenever and wherever such a choice has been foisted upon a population, civil conflict becomes the unavoidable result. That sounds pretty accurate. Shirk says what makes our circumstances particularly incendiary is the extent to which the American ruling class has taken sides. Corporate oligarchs, the entrenched bureaucratic government, and the state-controlled press have joined together to push extremely divisive moral, economic, and political worldviews upon the American people. And by doing so, they've not only burned the bridges responsible for maintaining cultural peace, but have also destroyed any potential off-ramps that might allow these institutions to alter course as future events transpire. In the past, multinational corporations could expect liberty-minded Americans to more or less respect the movements of free markets, even when they disagreed with the outcomes, such as the offshoring of American jobs to more business-friendly environments. Now, however, after not only witnessing China and other foreign adversaries buying up companies and properties in their own backyards, but also enduring transnational behemoths haranguing Americans for not sufficiently embracing transgenderism, electric vehicles, white privilege, limitless immigration, or other tenets of the woke faith, 
a substantial percentage of formerly free market Americans subsequently view the financial class with irate suspicion. Shirk says instead of facilitating the free trade of goods and services, large companies have revealed themselves to be exclusively interested in long-term monopolies, government partnerships, and social control. Corporate oligarchs have chosen to proselytize Americans into accepting the World Economic Forum's transhuman, technocratic, feudalistic project of global management, and by, sowing, and by doing so, they've made themselves enemies to all freedom-supporting human beings. While defaming anyone to the right of Marx as a fascist, corporate boardrooms incestuous relationship with government wielded power has brought fascism back to life. That's real fascism. Freedom-minded Americans now know that neither corporations nor governments that they figuratively control, they furtively control, rather, the corporations furtively control, are their friends. If and when civil order disorder breaks, let's try that again, if any civil, if and when civil order breaks down, there will likely be no circumspect public division between those elites who betrayed liberty and those elites who did not. Because of the overwhelming unanimity of elite support for the Marxist globalists program of radical change or the noticeable silence of those companies, politicians, and institutional parties in the face of this civilizational onslaught, when the fire finally rages, he says, it will consume all. Now, J.B. Shirk says the central bank money printers, the corporate kings, the global warming zealots, government technocrats, clandestine security services, and bureaucratic authoritarians have essentially created a zero-sum game. Therefore, when regular people are finally forced to defend their way of life against tyrannical aggression, they will conclude that no person in a position of authority today is without some guilt. The graveyard of burned bridges and detonated off-ramps all around us has ensured there will be no future safe space. In a discussion with with, uh, Tucker Carlson, astute public policy critic Michael Schellenberger says bluntly, we know that the pillars of civilization are cheap energy, meritocracy, law and order, and free speech. All four of those pillars are currently under attack. Because of government sustained offensive against the very pillars necessary for prosperity and peace, there's a widening gulf separating the priorities of global elites and the general populations they now insist on ruling. Schellenberger looks at the climate change conference now taking place in Dubai and sees it as nothing less than an anti-human death cult. Carlson agrees and concludes it's not environmentalism, it's the snarling face of tyranny. Now, Americans have a history with tyranny, and our national ethos is predicated on its destruction. For two and a half centuries, Americans have celebrated their ancestors' victories over the British Empire and the creation of a new country hostile to aristocratic entitlements and founded on a sincere devotion to the protection of individual lives, as well as an individual's liberties and an individual's ownership of private property. So now Americans are waking up to a collectivist nightmare that devalues individual life as well as individual real, uh, individual liberty as a relic from the past. What this means is that when a social collapse occurs, it will be widespread and devastating and will require a great deal of endurance to make it to the other side. However, he points out, Americans are in much better shape than those nations of people who have no history of self-governance or self-government for that matter. The ones that have no respect for personal property or devotion to human liberty. Already, small towns of people are organizing for future calamity by speaking clearly about their agricultural resources, potential monetary needs, and capacity for self-defense. Soberly preparing for the globalists' planned destruction, he says, is how we will all survive. 
by the way, I think he's right. It starts at the community level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Final segment today. I'm still kind of resonating with that article from J.B. Shirk. I mean, he correctly identifies, I think, a lot of the challenges and problems we face and the source of many of those problems. I like, though, that he points toward more local solutions. And if you're, you know, if you're inclined to get involved and to politically, you know, exert your influence, I think the local level is where you're going to see the greatest return for investment in terms of time, energy, and just that that moral effort. Not everybody's going to agree, but this is this is where I think the most likely solutions are going to be found. And if you're building those uh, relationships with people at the local level, I think that's probably going to be best. By the way, that doesn't mean government necessarily. Certainly, you should be more active at the local level as far as as your own governance. But what are you doing to connect with like-minded people that you could trust in a chips down, you know, kind of situation? It's not too late to start, but I will say that that window of opportunity appears to be closing pretty quickly. So it might not be a bad idea to to jump on that sooner than later and and start to know the people around you. Really get to know who shares your values, who would stand up with you. Who would, at a moment's notice, come to your defense? For people to say, oh, there's no possibility we're ever going to reach that point. Sorry, that's naive. It's, it's already getting pretty desperate for some people. Do you know what your line in the sand is? Do you know at what point you would say, sorry, I got to step away from polite society and go my own way? You may think that, oh, that's a choice I'd never face. But the truth is, every single one of us will face that choice at some point in our lives. And it's not one that you're going to be able to avoid indefinitely. You can go back to sleep if you want. And yes, Leviathan will wake you when it's ready for you. Or you can start putting together your plans for what will I do? What will I build that will make uh, all of uh, Leviathan's uh, ministrations and, and blessings obsolete? I think that's a better way to go. All right, two quick articles I want to point you toward. Article of the day. This is a fairly lengthy article, and it is linked to dozens of other articles that that likewise will help expound on this subject. But it's the idea of individualism, individual rights. It's a terrific primer produced by uh, Patrick Carroll and Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. I highly recommend both of these men as writers. I highly recommend the organization for which they write, the Foundation for Economic Education. I've had a chance to rub shoulders with, uh, with Dan in particular and with others at the Foundation for Economic Education, and I'm telling you from, from a principled standpoint, it would be hard to do better. If you stop and look at the different uh, conflicts that are playing out around us, and primarily political, but there are other conflicts too, but it always seems to come back to some variation of the rights of the individual versus the collective. So if you're used to seeing things in, well, liberal versus conservative or Republican versus Democrat, let those labels go and understand that within those subgroups, it's always the individual 
versus the collective. I think another way to put this is, you know, the um, I think it was uh, David O. McKay. He was uh, president of the of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints uh, back about the time I was born, and for some time before that. And he made a statement that has always kind of stuck with me, and that is that the history of mankind could be expressed in the question, "Will man be free?" Seriously, the entire history of mankind seems to be expressed in that question. And it always comes down to, will the rights of the individual be respected or not? Will they be subsumed by the collective? Will you get some great historical um, thinking on the origins of individualism, as well as some remarkable articles that back up why the individual matters, why individualism needs to be embraced and celebrated. And I'm including that as the article of, uh, article of the day for today. This is December 11th, 2023. You can find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Well worth your time. If you make the time to read this, you will not regret it. All right, one final article, and that is, uh, I think, a sure sign of the nervousness of the political class is the renewed calls this last week for gun control. I think the Senate actually tried to pass some kind of a assault weapon ban. It went nowhere. But the fact that they're even trying to float this, I mean, do you have any idea how many guns have been sold? I'm going to say since 2008, since Obama was elected president and, and even through Trump's presidency, you know, through the, the course of the pandemic. The, the horse is out of the barn. 3D printers abound. Parts and ammunition right now are everywhere and the idea that well we need to go around and round up all these guns that we call assault weapons is just that is wishful thinking writ large besides the fact that uh, anyone foolish enough to actually try to implement such a plan would quickly demonstrate why the second amendment was included in the bill of rights well these are weapons of war brian no not yet You start sending organized uh, teams to take them away, and that's exactly what they will become, as intended by the founding generation. They understood what it was like to have to extricate themselves from the clutches of tyrannical government, government that would not let them go their way in peace, that was determined to impose its solutions and its policies upon them, no matter what. I'm not talking about something that's necessarily pleasant, but I do want to share with you Michael Bolden of the Tenth Amendment Center's uh, strategy. Actually, it's James Madison's strategy to stopping federal gun control. An excellent article, as everything I've seen from the Tenth Amendment Center always is. Michael Bolden says, writing in Federalist 46, James Madison gave us a four-step blueprint of how to stop federal programs without waiting for the federal government to somehow magically limit its own power. And his strategy can and should be applied to a wide range of issues, including calls for federal gun control. Now, Madison's strategy, he says, focuses solely on actions by states and individuals bypassing the feds completely. And he told us that following it would be extremely effective in stopping federal acts. Here's how Madison put it, quote, would oppose in any state difficulties not to be despised, would form in a large state very serious impediments and where the sentiments of several adjoining states happen to be in unison would present obstructions which the federal government would be hardly willing to encounter. End quote. So in short, a single state following Madison's strategy would create troubles for the feds. A large state would create serious issues for federal enforcement, and should a number of states take the same approach, 
the feds wouldn't be able to overcome it. Now, keep in mind, this was at a time when the federal government was so tiny in comparison to today, it would be unrecognizable. These days, in an era where the federal government relies on states to do pretty much everything, the strategy is even more powerful. During the so-called federal government shutdown of 2013, the National Governors Association thought they raised the alarm when they lamented that states are partners with the federal government on most federal programs. But here's the dirty little secret they don't want you to understand. Partnerships don't work too well when half the team quits. So with that in mind, here are Madison's four steps as applied toward gun control. First, the disquietude of the people. Madison expected the people to throw a fit when the feds usurped power or tried to implement unpopular policies. When it comes to any and all federal gun control on the books, that's pretty straightforward. People need to be really outspoken, protesting online and off. Now, that's already happening today, but he says the people need to ramp it up massively. Secondly, it's their repugnance and refusal to cooperate with the officers of the union. Now, you and I probably consider all federal gun control to be totally repugnant to the Constitution, the Second Amendment, and the principles of liberty. True, it's absolutely disgusting, but in context, this is not likely the way Madison was using the term. The leading dictionaries of the time defined repugnance as disobedient, not obsequious or compliant. But if you want to stop the federal government, you have to disobey them. Madison also suggested the people would perhaps directly refuse to cooperate with federal agents. Third point is the frowns of the executive magistracy of the state. Here Madison envisions, envisions governors formally protesting federal, federal actions. That not only raises public awareness, but executive leadership also leads to the next step, which is legislative, legislative action in the states. And the fourth piece is legislative devices, which would often be added on such occasions. Madison kept that open-ended, but we're actually seeing it, by, we're seeing it happen today. By combining steps three and four, Earlier this year, Montana Governor Greg Gianfort sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland denouncing the ATF pistol brace rule and notifying him that the state law bans the state from helping the ATF enforce it. Now, thankfully, Montana is not alone in this effort. HB 258 uh, covers more than just the pistol brace rule. You've got other states like Missouri, Arizona, and Kentucky with laws on the books, each banning the state from participating in the enforcement of various amounts of gun control. Idaho could be on board as well. Now, four or five states four or five states is a good foundation, but it needs to be a lot more to guarantee a victory for the Second Amendment and liberty. Please check this article out. It's in today's show notes in the Brian, at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for December 11th, 2023. This is The Brian Hyde Show.